Hi, you're listening to TGC Q&A, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition, and this is the Biblical Counseling Series featuring hopeful answers to your questions on navigating fear, anxiety, ministry and marriage, and everything in between. My name is Mark Shaw, and I'm the Director of Counseling at Grace Fellowship Church in Florence, Kentucky, and the founder of the Addiction Connection, also located in Florence, Kentucky. And the Addiction Connection is a ministry that offers training for the local church in addiction counseling, as well as a network of biblical counselors, programs, providers in the United States and around the world. And today I'll be answering some important questions we receive from you on addiction. Our first question we received is this one. How can I help those in my church as they seek to overcome an addiction? I just think that's a great question. And I'm, I wish more people would ask that question in the local church, because I think we have lots to offer as the body of Christ to those who struggle with addiction. And I think we've been duped a little bit in this issue. We think like the world thinks sometimes that this is a supersized issue. You know, there are uh, Christians who struggle with sin, and then there are addicts who struggle with sin. And really, addiction is a sin issue of the heart. And I, as I even think about how Jesus referred to this issue, he never called it a disease. The world calls it a disease. But Jesus called it a sin issue in Matthew 11. And in uh, the book of Luke, he mentions that. And so we have been duped sometimes to believe that this is a supersized issue uh, one that requires special medical expertise, and there is a physical component, certainly when you're talking about marijuana, opioids, cocaine, those particular substances can really scare you as a church member as, well, I don't know what to do with that. Well, you don't have to deal with the physical part of it. You can send them to a medical doctor. We want to get them under the care of a physician who can help them with the physical part of the addictive uh, problem that they're facing. But what you can be is you can be a heart doctor. And I don't mean that in a physical sense. I mean it in the spiritual sense that you can help people with their heart desires. What are they wanting more than they want to serve and honor God? And, and what is it that has enslaved them, you know, that they seek refuge in, that they run from their pain uh, and escape to pleasure. And so that's what you can help do in the church body. And I would encourage you to not do it alone. I like to counsel in teams of two. Personally, that's my approach. And, and that's how I encourage people at our church to do counseling is to have a partner. I think with addiction, especially because of the deception, because of some of the uh, tricky parts of uh, working with someone who might not be ready to be all in and, and transparent, you want to have somebody there who can help you to ask hard questions if you have trouble with that. I think of truth tellers with grace givers. You need both of those types of people working together. Uh, so that's how kind of how we pair people up. We pair them up with, you know, the hard truth teller with a, a softer grace giver. And, um, you know, but because really real truth is always gracious. Real grace is always truthful. So we want to pair those people up to care for the addicted person well, 
to ask tough questions, but to also help them to feel comfortable and accepted and loved and uh, provide the best kind of care possible. So with the problem of addiction, I think the local church is the answer and that we don't have to do it alone. So I would encourage you not only have a counseling partner, but a assign other people in the church. A small group is great to, to provide some support and some uh, challenging questions in a small group setting that, uh, so what we do at our church, we have a group of people who uh, work with the addicted and they do so in an invitation only way. So if someone asks for help, we, we invite them into this group and it's a protected group in one sense, but we do that because we want them to be honest. We want them to feel comfortable and safe that this is a place they can talk and be honest. If you if you open that net too wide in a church, and I think sometimes the temptation in church is to say, I want to make this as big as possible. I want to invite every addicted person in my whole community to come. And, and I love that heart, but I also think sometimes that's not as effective as when you select people to join that group. So we self-select, we, we, you know, we want people who are willing and wanting to change, wanting to be transparent because we want them to be in that small group component of our, so we have counseling, but we have the small group. We want them to be in that so that they can uh, be honest and talk about the real struggles and the temptations that are all around them uh, in an effort to help them. So I really like the team approach in counseling. I like the small group approach. Of course, I love, you know, uh, the worship service and that part of it. But biblical counseling to me is is really all three of those, the, the large corporate gathering, the small group gathering, and then the one-on-one, or in my case, two counselors with one person, where we're counseling and helping them uh, to be honest and tell us what's really going on. And I, I think the reason people don't ask for the church to help them is because they think, well, I'm going to be judged. I have this supersized issue. How can these people relate? How can they know me? But I think if they can get over that and get in that small group setting, uh, they'll understand that we're all sinners. We all struggle with our own heart desires, maybe not to the degree of being addicted and and being in some uh, life, you know, uh, scary situations. I mean, uh, you know, when you're using cocaine and opioids, uh, you're at risk of dying. And if you sin in that way, it's it's much more devastating than in you know if I if you're sinning in a uh, you're not loving your kids or your wife or your husband those are still sins but they're not as uh, life threatening uh, so that that's where we try to help those who struggle with addiction is to be honest be open and to feel loved and accepted by the church because they've been duped and they sometimes believe that. The church just doesn't love them, doesn't accept them, and that nothing, I I just don't think that's the case with God's people. I think they are loving, trying to help the addicted, and just don't know how to do it. So I want to equip them to do it with our ministry, The Addiction Connection. What biblical encouragement is there for someone who is battling an addiction? Well, that's a great question. And the thing I think about for the people who are in the church and want to help I think about the verse 1 Thessalonians 2 8, which says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
And so if somebody is asking for help, you have a lot to offer them in terms of uh, the gospel, the hope of what Christ has done for us. And when you call addiction a sin issue of the heart rather than the theory that it's a disease, then you have biblical words, biblical language to offer them uh, the hope of the gospel for the heart of addiction. I think about 1 Corinthians 2.13, which says this, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So we have this mind of Christ. We have the word of God and the Holy Spirit to offer people who struggle with addiction. When we use language that is biblical and not worldly words that would maybe point them away from Christ or away from his body, we want to be a people who... Uh, point them to Jesus Christ and the local church to help them with any issue, including addiction, which I think has been isolated and supersized and made into an issue that's larger than the church can handle. But that's really not the case. God has given us uh, the great gift of being able to comfort those with the same comfort that we've received. I, I think about 2 Corinthians 1 three through seven, which talks about that, sharing that same comfort you've received. So if you're a church member and you've received comfort from the Holy Spirit, which that's his job, and uh, what he does is it can you can use that same thing to help someone else. So it, it doesn't have to be that you've struggled with heroin or, or put a needle into your arm to be able to help someone who struggled with addiction. When you understand the heart issues, and the desires. And when I talk about that, I think about 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, particularly uh, verse 16 talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life. And in my addiction training, I talk about those three desires of the heart that I think drive addiction issues. And there, what's great about that is when you understand lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and I don't have time to get into all that here, but when you understand those desires, what happens is you understand how am I wanting something and believing a lie that God uh, won't provide me what I you know, want, but uh, this thing will, this drug will, the substance will, um, and you understand the lie and the motivation of what you're thinking, then you can tear that lie down and replace it with biblical truth and then learn to think that way on your own. So initially you need some help. You need the body of Christ. You need a trusted Christian friend. You need other people to come alongside a small group to help you. But in time you can learn to recognize those lies that are in your own flesh. They're in your own heart. You're desiring lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And so that's the way I try to counsel and help uh, church members to understand what's, you know, try to help them understand what, they're desiring in their heart, what lies are they believing, you know, about God? And I know that's a strong way to say it, but the great thing is when you understand the lie you're believing and wanting in your flesh, and you're understanding too what the world is offering and what how they tempt you in that system and even Satan and his lies, then you can tear that down and replace it with what God says in his word by his spirit, and you can begin to live in a practical way. And there are lots of put-ons, a lot of righteous choices and righteous behaviors that an addict can do to enjoy life, to enjoy God, and not have to live enslaved to drug addiction. Because that's really the trick, is they think, 
I'm using this and I'm going to enjoy it and I'm in control of it. But in time, it takes control of them and it enslaves them. And so I want them to be free and, and God wants them to be free more than I do. And God offers uh, righteous choices, righteous ways of thinking and living. And we need the addicted people in our churches. We need them serving God because these are the people who will be a radical for Jesus and serve him in a myriad of ways that are needed in the body of Christ. The biblical approach to addiction is not just behavioral modification, which is part of it, but you start with the heart. And so you help people to understand what they're wanting, what they're really desiring, what they're believing that might lead them astray and uh, lead them to make a wrong choice and then help them to begin to desire and want what God wants. And that's when behavior then follows that. So I love the type of counseling we get to do in biblical counseling, which is addressing hard issues, helping people to understand that. And, and it's ugly sometimes when you look at your own heart and you go, oh, I can't believe I wanted that. What is wrong with me? Why would I you know, sell out the uh, ocean for a little puddle of water, a temporary pleasure for something that I could, you know, enjoy for a long period of time. And I think about Esau in Genesis when he turned in his inheritance, his spiritual inheritance for a temporary bowl of soup. I mean, that's kind of what an addiction, addictive choice is like. It's, it's settling for soup when you have you know, your whole life ahead of you. And, and that's what Esau did in that moment. And so we want to help people to understand what they're wanting and not give in to those desires, but to replace those desires with desires that would please God. And then that's when behavior changes. That's when people want to do the right thing, but they need a little help too in doing it. It's like going to the gym and working out. I mean, a lot of people don't wake up and say, man, I can't wait to go to the gym. But they, if they have a partner who comes and knocks on their door, like in college, a dorm room, and you knock on the door, hey, it's time to go run. It's time to work out. I mean, you get up and you go, and then you love it because it, you are benefiting your body. You're doing what uh, is good, and it takes some discipline. It takes some work. But when someone comes along and invites you to do that run with them, it's much easier. So I think for the church, we've got to help people in, and be willing to sacrifice ourselves. What, one thing the world does very well is they offer 24-7 sponsors and care for people who struggle with addiction. And so uh, it's almost like taking care of a little puppy who's in your home and doesn't sleep at night or a newborn baby, and you're having to kind of work with this person in the beginning in that same mindset. But in time, they're going to grow and mature and, and eventually be able to help other people. So it's about addressing the heart and then behaviors will follow. Uh, that's the hope. And not that they'll ever have it all solved and won't ever be tempted. But when temptation comes, they'll be able to handle it because they know the truth and they're able to tear down the lies and replace those lies with biblical truth. Yeah, a big issue for those who struggle with addiction is the shame. And I think when you feel overwhelming guilt and shame for what you've done, even when sometimes you know you've been forgiven, but it comes to mind and it brings back those feelings, it's the the resentment means to refeel something. And so when you resent or you refeel it, it's like tearing off the, the scab on your arm that's healing. And now it hurts again. You feel a pain and now it has to reheal. 
And so our minds, we think about things that we've done. We feel that shame and guilt, and it can plague us uh, at times. So I encourage the people that I work with uh, to get a friend. I'm not Mr. You've got to do it all by yourself and figure this out. I think that's why God gave us the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, people that we can be uh, open with. I think about Jesus. I even have my counselees decide who are those three people that you can tell anything to and who are the 12 that there's a level of intimacy there that that's good. But those three are the ones you really tell everything to. And so they have people that they can call they can turn to right away and say, you know, I'm really struggling with the guilt of what I've done, the shame of it. I'm thinking about it again. And of course, they sometimes will have them have uh, write out Bible verses, scripture to put on their person on a three by five card or in their purse, wallet that you can pull out and begin to, to read truth and remind you of your identity in Christ is sure. I mean, that's a big issue for those who struggle with addiction. Because and the and the danger of all this too, the bitterness and the shame, is that when you feel that pain again, you end up running to that drug of choice because you know it feels good, you know it provides an escape. Proverbs twenty three verse thirty five says, "They struck me, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink." I think clearly in that verse you see the tendency to say, "This is a place where I won't hurt." I can take a beating and I won't feel it. They can hit me. They can hurt. They can try to hurt me, but it won't hurt because alcohol and drugs are the place where I feel safe. And so when you're feeling guilty and ashamed, you can run to that drug of choice more quickly. But the thing to do is to help people to understand that forgiveness is uh, secured in Christ. And so what a gift that God's given us. Otherwise, you struggle with the guilt and the shame of what you've done. What you've done, and and there are times where that might be reminded or brought, you know, brought to your remembrance. And I think can be a good thing to humble people, um, to keep them in a place where God, I need you. I need to trust you. It's not based on feelings, but I'm going to trust you. I don't like this. Um, it's humbling me, but it's allowing me to trust you more and to turn to Him and to remember that. He has forgiven us past, present, and future of all of our sins, which is just remarkable to think about. And so that guilt and that shame, that feeling might be there for a moment, but I think it can be for good to to make our character more like Jesus Christ, to help us to trust God more at his word rather than our feelings and our understanding. I love Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, which says, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. And so we're not to lean on our own feelings, our own understanding, uh, any of that. We have to trust in God and what he says. And so the gospel is the reminder and the help for those who struggle with guilt and shame. The question came in, how can I help someone who is addicted to pornography? Well, this is a very common issue in the church world, in our in our world today, because of just the sexualized culture we live in that feeds our own hearts. But again, we can't blame the culture. We can't blame external things. It's our hearts. It's, it's us. We are responsible for what we desire, and we have to be careful uh, about everything. And I, and I think 
many men and, and women uh, that I've counseled can get overconfident and think, you know, I can do this myself. And so the first thing that I try to do to help someone who's struggling with pornography is to help them to confess it, to be honest and open. Uh, Proverbs 28, 13 reminds us to not to conceal our transgressions, because if you do, you won't prosper. God won't bless that. But if you confess and forsake them, so there's a there's not just confessing, but there's something you have to do. The forsaking is the doing part of confession. So you say it, you agree with God, but then you make effort to go the other way. Those people find, Proverbs 28, verse 13 tells us, they find mercy. Now, we all want mercy. No one stands before the judge and says, give me justice. You know, we all say, give me mercy, meaning don't give me what I deserve. And so I think that is the bulwark of counseling people who struggle with pornography. They, they feel the guilt and shame of that so much so that they're afraid to tell other people. And they're afraid that because they've struggled with this lust, this strong desire, that's what a lust is, uh, they think, well, this person won't like me, or they'll tell me never come over to our house again, or they'll treat them. And, and, and some people do that. I mean, that's a reality. But, um, but the truth is, a strong, mature believer, if you confess it to, the, to that kind of person, they should be able to help you and encourage you and say, you know, I've struggled with the same kind of thing. Uh, we all struggle with strong desires in, in whatever way. And my lead pastor says all the time, we are all sexually broken because of this world we live in. Uh, we are just inundated with images and messaging that uh, is sexualized in so many ways. And so a mature person steps into their world and helps them without judging them, but understanding that uh, they can fall too. And so I always counsel people to not think you have to do it on your own. Uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. All that's a lie uh, from the pit of hell, really. Um, God wants us to recognize we need each other and we need to be humble and open. And so I think about 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20, which says, flee from sexual morality. And so that part of the verse of that passage, the flee part, is to run. It, it's not to entertain it, not to pretend that you can control it or you can do it, but you need to flee that. You need to treat that like it's a, it's a room on fire in your house and you run. I mean, it, it's serious. It says every other sin a person commits is outside the body. So when you talk about drugs and alcohol and uh, substances, you take those, they're outside of the body, you drink those, you put them in your body. But then it says in that verse, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 6, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So where do you go to treatment for, for something that's in your own body? It's in your own mind. Uh, your own desires are, are doing this to you. So the drugs are inside of you already, the images and the pictures. And so you have to flee that. You have to replace those thoughts with biblical thoughts or even pictures where you, you look at a picture of something that's godly and righteous and true. Uh, thinking about Jesus on the cross is one thing that is a powerful image to think about. And I, I know that 
you know, there aren't images of the real Jesus, but people have done paintings and different things that, that you can uh, utilize to replace what's wrong in your mind with something that is righteous and true. And so going back to 1 Corinthians 6, then it says in verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so you're helping people to understand they have to flee from this. They have to treat it seriously because the drugs are in their own body. Uh, it's, it's within and that um, they have been bought with a price. So they belong to God now and are meant for good purposes, clean purposes. And God wants to use them in that way. And so when you're thinking about sexual sin and lust, you're not thinking about other people. You're not loving other people. Unfortunately, you're thinking about yourself and what you can get. And one of the key principles in marriage and in sex is that it's meant to be something to bless your uh, married partner, the person that you're married to. Your body is meant to please them and they're meant to please you. And, and you know, you think about any relationship, it can even be a friendship, when you think about the other person and they think about you more than you think about yourselves, you're going to have harmony. You're going to get along really well. But the second one of you or both of you starts thinking about me and what I want from you and you better give it to me, that's when you start to have problems. And so the same is true in the marriage sexual relationship is uh, God wants them to uh, think about that other person more important than and pleasing them. In the act of sex or really in, in marriage anytime, is thinking about how can I please them? How can I serve them? How can I love them rather than how can I get something from them and they better please me? And that is a driving force in all sexual sin. But those who have struggled with pornography tend to be thinking about getting. And it's a, it's a mindset that's learned, but it can be unlearned. It can be forgiven. It can be uh, something that can be renewed by God's grace. There's great hope for those who struggle with this, but it all starts with being honest, transparent, opening up, not trying to hide it, not trying to pretend that you never struggle, but that you own it with this other person. Again, those three people that are very intimate that you, you have in your life, I always teach people 3, 12, and 70. Have the 70 group, the, the large worship gathering, the 12 it's kind of a small group that you can share things and be honest and open with. But those three people in your life, and, and three is just a number. It could be five. It could be one. It, you know, I, I'm just using the example because that's what Jesus had with the 12 disciples. So the three people in your life are those three that you're very open and transparent with, and they know everything. That's what you want to want to start with because when you confess and forsake your sin, you'll find mercy.